All right. Well, good morning again. Glad you guys are here. We are on week number two of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called The Pursuit, and it's God's Heart for Rebels. It's a study really through the biblical book of Jonah, and the whole series is centered around this whole idea that God cares so much about you that he is pursuing you. He's pursuing a relationship with you and with me. Wherever you're at, it doesn't matter whatever you've done. It doesn't matter if you're feeling like you're on top of the world and you're walking in between raindrops and everything is going your way, or if you feel like you're at the bottom of the bottom and nothing is going your way or anywhere in between. God is there and he is pursuing you. He is coming after you, not in a fearful like, oh no, look, look outside kind of way, but in a way because he cares about you and he wants good things for you. And so that's kind of the big picture of the book of Jonah, that he is pursuing you, wanting to restore you, wanting to bring you home to him, to fill you with hope, to teach you how life was meant to be lived. Last week, we just did the big picture. We did Jonah at 20,000 feet. Uh, this week, we're, we're kind of going to dig into chapter one and just kind of walk through it and learn some lessons uh, about God's pursuit of us and about sort of our uh, rebellious heart, our ability to run. Uh, and I think, uh, I think God has some great stuff to say to us in the midst of that. So as we start out this morning, let me just pose this question. Have you ever run from God? Have you ever been in a situation where you've run, maybe not physically, where you took off a you know, 2,500-mile trip in the wrong direction or anything like that, but maybe in your heart? Have you ever turned away from something that you knew God wanted you to do? I know I have. I was thinking about it this week. I, I was thinking of lots of stories and lots of times when I have run from God, from all the way back to uh, during my teenage and early uh, kind of 20s years uh, when especially my teenage years when I had never really settled this deal with Christ. I didn't really know who he was or what he wanted for my life. Even though I didn't recognize that I was running from him, I was charting my own course in a direction that was the polar opposite of what God wanted for me. And then even after, a little bit later, after I uh, um, had discovered as kind of God had drawn me to himself and opened up my eyes to see him and know him and receive him, uh, I can still think of so many examples, uh, maybe in small ways, some maybe in some bigger ways, uh, ways that I ran from God. I was thinking even after I was a pastor, probably if, 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 I, if I had really good clarity, I could probably think of examples this week, right? Small ways in which I have probably turned away uh, from God and run from Him. One example I was thinking of is, uh, remember back in the early 2000s, um, we had started a church up in Wisconsin and uh, I started getting a nudge from God, kind of a prompting, felt like God was speaking that I needed to go back to school and I need to finish up um, uh, my master's, my seminary degree that I had started and never finished. And uh, I wrestled with him on that deal for quite some time. In fact, I would say I ran. And uh, you have to kind of understand the, the, the story a little bit to understand why that was a struggle for me. But going back right, right out of college, I had started down this path. I'd started going to school. We lived and worked at a church outside of Rockford, Illinois at the time. And uh, so I would drive into Chicago once or twice a week, took night classes, did the whole drill, um, and, and started down that path. And there were some good classes or some stuff that I really liked, but there was also some classes, uh, in fact, maybe even the majority of them that were super heady, like super just intellectual, super whatever. And I, the more I got into it, the more I was like, I hate this. Like, I'd rather gnaw off my left arm, right, than to keep, keep going with this. It, to me, it just felt like a waste. I was looking at, at the kind of people uh, that were coming out and the kind of jobs they were getting, the kind of things they were doing, and I was like, 
I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a scholar. That's not my heart. I don't want to be uh, whatever. And so I kind of developed a chip on my shoulder about this whole grad school and this whole seminary kind of experience. And I, uh, I kind of, kind of went on. We planted a church, uh, pastored it for a few years, and. Uh, uh, like I said, I kind of prided myself even on not being uh, one of those cemetery, I mean seminary kinds of graduates, right? I mean that kind of a that kind of an experience. And so when God started nudging me and saying, you know what, I, you need to humble yourself, Russ, and and go back. I've got some things I want to teach you, some ways you need to grow. I was like, um, no. Like, I don't want to be one of those people, right? I don't want to. I don't want to go down that path. I don't want to. I don't want to do it. And so I, I ran, I mean, maybe not physically, you know, like I wasn't taken off in the opposite direction, but I sort of ignored it. I kind of sh- shoved that nudge down and thought, well, I came up with excuses, what, we, what we've come to affectionately call rational lies, rational lies, right? But like, oh, I'm too busy. I could never have time for that kind of thing. Well, we couldn't afford it anyway. It cost a fortune. There's no way I could do that. And I had all kinds of excuses, but really they were just reasons I was putting in my mind to try and keep what God was asking of me at bay, right? So I pushed that to the side, but God kept speaking to me about it, nudging me. Well, a little while later, he started nudging other people, and that's when it got kind of annoying, right? I had two different mentors that came to me and said, Russ, I I have this sense that maybe you need to be thinking about going back to school. I'm like... Surely not, right? <laughs> this, is, this cannot be from God. And so I threw my, well, I'm busy. We can't afford it. Besides, I don't want to be one of those kind of thing. And they kind of kept, kept nudging me a little bit. Little, maybe a month or two later, a guy from uh, our own leadership team at the church that we were part of said, oh, he's talking to me one day. He's like, oh, I felt like God, I was praying the other day and I feel like God was kind of nudging me and gave me a message for you. He reaches in his pocket and pulls out a piece of paper. He wrote it down and I'm like, oh no. And he's like, I goes, I don't know, it's something about going back to school. And he kind of had this whole thing written out. I'm like, yeah. And so I I mean, at this point, I'm really starting to roll my eyes, right? Like, oh, come on, are you serious? And I'm like, well, I half-heartedly now kind of throw out my attempt. I'm getting a little ticked that God's so resilient at this kind of thing. Like, well, I can't afford it, can't whatever. And finally, like a couple weeks later, I had a mentor that said, said this. He said, you know, if money really is the issue, I'll pay for it. He said, how much longer are you going to keep running from God on this? And that was, the, that was when everything became crystal clear for me. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, he's, he's right. You know, like, I mean, I didn't mean to. I, didn't even, I wasn't even aware of it at the time. But in my heart, I, was, I knew what God wanted. I knew what he was asking of me. And I was running in the opposite direction. I was like, I did not want that plan. And so I finally uh, had, to, had to get on board with his plan. I kind of submitted to that, applied to school, got accepted, went through it. Uh, and it was, I mean, was there some intellectual heady stuff? Yeah. I mean, but was there some great formational stuff that God did in my own heart and soul? Yeah. Also, I met this guy by the name of Paul Seidel, who now is our campus pastor in Sunnyland, uh, right? And I mean, God obviously had plans. It was a transformational time for me, but, uh, and I could have missed it, right? I, I, I could have missed out on what God had for me in that era if I'd have just kept going my own way. Uh, author and pastor Erwin McManus says this. He says, the mark of maturity is what he calls lag time. 
And he says, you can tell the maturity of a person by the distance between the command of God and their obedience to God. The amount of time that takes is a reflection on how mature they are spiritually. He says, if the distance is short, they're pretty mature, right? If God says something, nudges them, opens up his, his word and says, boom, here's how you need to live, and they respond and do it, he said, that's, a, that's the sign of a mature person. If, uh, if God kind of speaks or reveals something over here, and there's a lag time, <laughs> right, until way over here, till you actually put it into practice, he said, that's a sign of immaturity. And I think this, this example that I'm giving in my own life was kind of a wake-up call for me that there was some immaturity that was in me, some things that I needed to surrender to God, some ways that I needed to get into alignment with Him because He had been pursuing me and I had been running away. I wonder if you ever run from God like that. I mean, I wonder if there are big ways or even small ways, whether you know it or not, ways in which... Maybe you have an idea of what God is saying to you about how you should live, about directional kinds of things, conversations you need to have, even occupational, who knows, but, but things that, that you kind of have a, a pretty good idea that God's been nudging you on, and yet you're, you don't really want to do it. And so you're either waiting, and there's lag time, or maybe you're running and running away from uh, the plans that God has for you. Maybe your response is, God, I don't want that. Maybe you're like me and you're throwing up all kinds of rational lies about wh reasons why you can't do what God's asking you to do. Maybe you just ignore it or maybe you turn and run. Well, today we're gonna learn some lessons about running and God's pursuit after us from a guy by the name of Jonah. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Jonah chapter one. Uh, it's a little tiny book, four chapters long at the end of the Old Testament. There's no shame in using a table of contents if you need to. You can also pull out your phone, use the YouVersion uh, Bible app, or you can use even the Ignite Church app. We've got notes and stuff in there you can follow along, and it'll be up on the screens as well. But would encourage you just to, to read through this with me. We're going to kind of go a piece at a time. In Jonah chapter 1, starting with verse 1, says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah turned and ran. So we'll stop there for just a second. Right, the, the, the beginning of, of Jonah says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's a fancy way of saying God spoke to Jonah. He brought his truth, his word to speak to him. And let me just stop and just say, did you know that God is speaking to you? In a similar way that he speaks to Jonah, God is speaking. He's not, he's not mute. He's speaking even today still. He speaks uh, probably most commonly through his word, right, through his book. We open this book up, and it is a book unlike any other. When you open the pages of this book, you can hear the living God speaking into your life. And your soul. I remember as in the days when I was an early, uh, first a believer, it was crazy. I can remember opening up the, the book and every day I felt like the living God was speaking to issues directly that were happening in my life. Directional issues, issues about my character, my heart, how I was to live, how I was to treat others around me. It was a, it was a, it was a night and day reversal. I had never experienced anything like that before. God was speaking and he is speaking still if we'll listen. We open up the pages of this book. God is speaking and trying to direct us and shape us and lead us, uh, our hearts and our lives. He's speaking. He 
speaks by his word. He also speaks by his spirit, the Bible tells us. He's, he prompts us. He reminds us of what he has said in his word. He directs us and helps us how to apply those things into real life. He directs us into Christ-like behavior. God is speaking. The living God is active, and he is speaking if we're listening. The word of the Lord came to Jonah in this instance, and he said to Jonah, he said, Jonah, I've got plans for you. I want you to go to these people. I want you to go to the Ninevites. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and warn them to come back home to me. A little background here before we uh, totally put the smack down on Jonah for running from God. But Nineveh, the place that God was telling Jonah to go to, is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was the arch enemy of Israel. It was the arch enemy uh, in that day of Jonah's people. They hated them. The Assyrians were known to be unnecessarily brutal enemies. There are stories peppered throughout history about the inhumane and brutal treatment that the Assyrians would have over their uh, conquered uh, enemies. For instance, when Assyrian armies would march into an, and conquer a new city, people, and sometimes entire, there's, there's stories of history of entire cities killing themselves before the Assyrians got there because the stories about them were so horrific. They're like, we'd rather die at our own hands than wait around and see what they'll do to us. The stories of, uh, of Assyrians would be like they'd come in and they'd win in battle. They would take anybody that survived, the men that survived, they would skin them alive and then take them out in the desert, dig a huge hole, bury them up to their neck with sand. So can you imagine sand on, on a skinned body, right? And they would sit there in the hot sun, leaving just their heads exposed and have to wait there to die. Is that not horrible? I mean, horrible, brutal kinds of stuff. There's stories about, I mean, the way they would uh, rape and then murder uh, women, children, all kinds of stuff. And then even after people were dead, then they'd behead them and take their heads and hang them on, on uh, their city walls and stuff like that. I mean, unbelievable kinds of stories. One author I read this week said the only example that even comes close in today's day and age would be ISIS. They said, imagine how, how you might feel to ISIS, especially if, if that was close to home. Like if people you knew, people that you cared about had been treated like this, they'd been beheaded, they'd been tortured, they'd been killed. People that were relatively innocent were, were tortured in inhumane and just unbelievable kinds of things. That's what the people of Nineveh were known for. That's what the Assyrians were known for. So how did Jonah feel about him? He hated him. He did not want good for them. In fact, if you were to ask him, he might not have said it in quite this language, but really he wanted them to burn. He wanted them to pay the price for their brutality, for their inhumane kind of treatment, just their, the way they treated others. He wanted them to be treated that way. He wanted nothing to do with a merciful God revealing himself to these people. And so God calls to Jonah. His name ironically means the peaceful one. So God calls the peaceful one. Oh, that sounds so nice. And he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, your arch enemies. Go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and I want you to warn them that they need to turn back to me so they can be forgiven or else I'm going to come and I'm going to bring judgment on them. Go ahead, Jonah. Go on over there. I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, yes, they could skin you alive. Yeah, they, they could behead you, right? I mean, that kind of thing. It, it, it could go really bad. It could beat you. It could be. But, but go ahead and go over there and warn them. Give them an opportunity to come back home to me, God's saying. 
Give them an opportunity to, to get a second chance. Give them an opportunity to come back home to God. And Jonah's like, um, let me think about this. No, right? And he takes off and he runs, doesn't he? He runs in the other direction. Leads us to kind of our first point today that we're gonna, we're gonna hit. We're just gonna look at four things in this passage as we go through. And the first one is this, we're all runners, right? All of us run in our own ways. But, but, but God comes to him, he says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to, to go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish, a city 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Now, in today's day and age, we think, oh, that's not that far. Right? We hop on a plane, do the thing. But imagine, right, by boat, by horseback, <laughs> like, how long do you think it might take you to get to a city 2,500 miles in the opposite direction from where God's calling you to go? It would take over a year. I mentioned it last week, right? It would take a long time. You couldn't get there in one sailing season. It would take you more than one. So God asked him to do something, Jonah, to do something incredibly hard something that doesn't make sense, something that he didn't want to do. And so Jonah runs as far as he can in the opposite direction. I wonder if maybe uh, you and I can relate. Has God ever asked you to do something that you didn't want to do? Something that seemed so countercultural, so counterintuitive that it sounded just crazy to follow through on? And so instead of following him, you kind of ran your own way. Let me give you some examples. Maybe there was a person in your life, maybe somebody that hurt you deeply and repeatedly, somebody that just wounded you, that was mean to you, that whatever, and God started meddling and sort of started prompting you and saying, you know, you need to forgive them. You need to, you need to release that. You don't, don't let bitterness and anger build up. You need to forgive as I have forgiven you. And you start thinking, man, I want no but god they don't deserve it right but god i don't want to do that but god whatever and so we turn and rather than forgiving we kind of headed in the opposite direction or maybe we didn't do that but we just delayed or we just kind of pushed it down a little bit we did nothing about it tried to pretend that god hadn't really said that or hadn't really nudged that that we didn't really know what god's truth said on that matter in one way or another you ran from god or maybe it was a money thing maybe god had been speaking to you about becoming more generous as, as he is generous maybe he started talking to you about tithing about giving your first 10 percent of your income back to god as part of your worship Maybe it's a, just a general turning over of your finances to God and his plans. Maybe it's a getting out of debt or whatever because you're buried and God's been speaking to you about this and nudging you to get your financial house in order. And for whatever reason, you're like, no, right? No, this is my money, God. Don't meddle with that. This is mine, right? I don't want your way. I, don't want, I, I can barely get by with what I'm doing now. How do you expect me to to become more generous? How do you expect me to, to get out of debt? I'm doing the best I can, just back off. And for whatever reason, you've sort of run away from God. Maybe it's a purity issue in one way or another. Maybe it's what you're looking at on the internet or on TV, Netflix or whatever. Maybe it's what you allow your mind to wander to. Or, or maybe you've been going further and further and further down the road with somebody that you're not married to. And God has been speaking to you and calling you to a life of purity. But rather than follow, you have turned and run. God, I know what you say, but I want to do this. I want to go my own way. I want to have it my way. It's not a big deal. And so you turn and you ran. 
Maybe God's nudged you to serve or volunteer someplace or to, to reach out to somebody at work in your neighborhood. Maybe he's called you to love somebody that really is, is hard to love or to serve somebody that you'd rather not have anything to do with. Maybe God's been pointing out greed in your own life or words, the harshness of your own words that are coming out or whatever. Maybe he's been pointing out the fact that your life is all about you. And really, if, if you're honest, you're the one that's in charge and not him. Maybe he's been speaking to you about that. And for whatever reason, instead of embracing what he's told you, instead of putting it into practice, instead of shortening that gap between when he speaks and when you act, you've been spreading it out and you've been going your own way. And in one way or another, you've been running from God. I was thinking about it this week, and I think the truth is that there's a little Jonah in all of us in there. If we're honest, if we're really honest, I think all of us can think of times when we have run or maybe are running from God. Even just small areas, maybe 90% of our lives that we're walking with God, but there's small areas even perhaps where we're holding on to stuff. We're like, God, I don't, stay away. I don't want you to meddle with that. In those ways, we are running from God, and so we run. Second thing takes us to our second point. When we run, it leads to a downward spiral. It leads to really some self-destruction. Listen, listen to this. We're going to read a chunk here starting with verse 3. Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went down aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, and when he lay down, or where he lay down, and fell asleep in a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast the lot, and it, the lot fell to Jonah. Busted. And so they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And he says this, pick me up and throw me down into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Eventually, as you and I run from God, and if we continue running from God, our life will start to unravel, and it'll start to fall apart in one way or another. Eventually, you'll have to come and experience and face the consequences of the dangerous and unwise decisions that you've made as you've run from God. Eventually, things will come full circle. There's no avoiding it. If you run, eventually, you, you start to self-destruct. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow or this week or next week, but eventually, it'll happen. Storms will come. Some of them will be of your making. Some of them will just be something sent from God all in an effort to bring you back to Him. 
There's a real interesting contrast that you uh, see all the way throughout the book of Jonah. I mentioned it quickly last week, but you've got to follow these words up and down throughout the entire book. Uh, I mentioned last week that uh, the word down is used in one way or another 24 times in the book, in the short book of Jonah. It's fascinating, and it's, and the author is trying to prove a point in it. And so you've got this some of them you can see in the, the English translation. Some of them, not so much. Some of them you have to kind of look at the original to get it. But I found it fascinating this week uh, to, to kind of look at, at, at how the, the words are used. The language here is super interesting. So it starts out and it says, Jonah, God speaks to him. He says, rise up, he says, which God always says, rise up and go to the people that I'm telling you and warn them to turn back to me. And so it says, Jonah rose up and what did he do? He ran from God, right? So he ran, he starts running in the opposite direction. And from that point forward, you can start seeing the word down show up all over the place, time after time after time. And from that point forward, he went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship, verse five. He went down to the bottom of the ship, verse 15. He went down into the sea, verse 17. He was thrown down into the belly of the fish. What do you think it is that the author is trying to communicate here? When we turn and we run from God, what starts happening? Down, 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 down. There's a downward spiral that starts happening, right? A downward spiral that begins. There's a cycle of self-destruction that starts coming into our lives. Well, what kind of self-destruction did you see? Do you see in Jonah's story? In fact, let's uh, let's get a little bit more interactive here. What kind of what kind of self-destruction? What kind of downward spiral do you see in Jonah's life from the story that we just read? What do you see or what do you know? It's okay to talk in church, right? Go ahead. What do you guys see? Don't be shy. He's separating himself from God. Yep. What do you What do you see in the story? What else? There's a storm that comes, right? A storm that's so bad that professional sailors are scared to death. Literally, they think they're dying. <laughs> so there's that. What else do you see? Huh? He ends up in a fish. Would you say that's a high point or a low point for Jonah, right? <laughs> One of the things I was, I was thinking about this week is we may have a, uh, a picture in our head that, that was painted of like in Pinocchio movies, right? Of what it would be like to be in a fish, right? In the belly of a whale or something. And oh, there's all kinds of vast room and whatever. Probably not going to be that glamorous, Right? There are some fish, there's some whales that would have enough air, uh, like uh, we see this in sperm whales that ha would have air in their stomach enough that you could survive on it. There's, there's some of this kind of stuff, but really most, uh, most fish, most whales, most sea creatures like that, it wouldn't be all that big. And what do you know about stomachs? What's the, uh, the pH of a stomach? It's acidic. So imagine you're in a little thing of uh, a little pocket of acid and partially digested fish and whatever it is that these creatures eat, right? Junk. How do you think it smells? Think that's pretty nice? It's probably close enough that like the walls are touching him. These acidic walls, like, does that sound like a pretty nice consequence, a pretty nice place to find yourself at the bottom of the sea in the, you know, in the middle of a, uh, the belly of a fish, a belly of a whale, something like that? I mean, it sounds terrible, right? sounds horrible, but there's others, right? I mean, there's, uh, I mean, even, even the, the moment before that, when, when the people, the sailors on the ship pick him up and throw him overboard, we'll, we'll see next week, chapter two, Jonah thought he was dead. He was left for dead in the middle of the ocean, right? Imagine what that would feel like. Imagine the pain of that. So you see all kinds of things that start uh, coming in this downward spiral that starts happening. 
He's thrown overboard. There's a horrific storm. There's guilt. We see in verse 12, he says, man, this is all my fault that this storm has come on you. There's some guilt, some regret. And he gets swallowed up by a fish and left for three days and three nights. When you and I run from God, we may not end up in the belly of a fish, but there will be storms. Eventually, we'll face storms. Eventually, we'll start to self-destruct. We'll start the downward spiral, and it leads nowhere good. I mean, think about it. When we turn our backs on God, we turn our backs on the source of life, right? The source of wisdom, the source of love, the only source of unconditional love that we'll ever experience. We'll leave behind the only one that can rescue us from the storm, the only one that can rescue us from the belly of the fish. Sooner or later, there's going to be a moment, hopefully, right, the Lord willing. Sooner or later, there'll be a moment like, like there was the prodigal son that we talked about last week or a moment like Jonah when he is at the bottom, an aha moment when, he's, when he thinks, what have I done? I have turned my back on the, on the only one that can save me. I've turned my back on the one who's been pursuing me because he loves me the one who said, I have come so that you can have life and have it to the full. What have I done? Sooner or later, our life, the downward spiral, will be seen for what it is. Our self-destructive habits and patterns will be seen for what it is. And it'll hurt not just you, but that'll take us to the third one. It hurts those around us as well, right? Running hurts those around you. I was thinking of this week, right, uh, about the whole, the whole deal. It doesn't just impact our lives. We hurt, uh, we hurt and we sometimes destroy and do damage to those around us as well. I was thinking of the sailors. What did the sailors do? Now, are the sailors completely innocent of sin and all like, no, of course not, right? But in this instance, this is Jonah's storm. But they get affected, don't they? They're, these guys are professional sailors. They're... Probably one of them is probably the owner of the boat. Of the boat. What had they done? All they'd done was taken Jonah's ticket, so to speak, right? They'd welcomed him aboard. And what happened? This huge storm comes up. The waves start crashing in. And it says it gets so intense that they think the ship is about to break up. And so these sailors start throwing cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. That means they're losing money big time. And when you get to the port and you say, sorry, I have nothing to sell. In fact, most of our supplies ended up at the bottom of the ocean. They could maybe very well lose their jobs, maybe lose their livelihood. And right at the moment, they are afraid of losing their very lives. All because they let somebody on board that was running from God. Friends, listen to this. If you are running from God, those around you will pay the price. Your husband, your wife, your kids will be injured by the shrapnel from your life. It'll not, it won't be their fault, right? They'll be victims, so to speak, but it's gonna happen. It'll negatively impact those that are around you. And we know this to be true, don't we? I mean, how many of us have stories, and myself included, how many of us have stories about parents, moms, or dads, or, or uh, husbands, or wives, or friends, or whatever that were running from God in our lives got negatively impacted as a result? How many stories are there of alcoholics or uh, people with anger and rage issues uh, that were close to us, and we ended up uh, paying the price. We ended up wounded and hurt as a result. It wasn't our storm, but we got hurt nonetheless. When we run from God, those around us, those that we love most, will end up paying the price with us. Let's finish up the chapter. Jonah tells uh, the men 
He says, yeah, what, they say, what do we need to do to keep the, keep the ship from, you know, falling apart and to, to calm the sea down? And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me overboard. Verse 13 says this, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and they threw him down. They threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that's, we're going to take us to our fourth point here, uh, is that God is coming after us. He's pursuing us. But God's pursuit is grace is gracious. It's grace filled. He's not coming after us to, to, uh, you know, to smite us as we might think. He's not coming after us to put the smack down on us. To, to whatever. He's co- he, he's coming after us to bring us back home, to Him. He's gracious. He's loving. He's forgiving, and He has good stuff in store for us. It's interesting as you read through uh, this chapter, right? Verse 4 says that Jonah ran away, and it says that the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and created such a violent storm that the ship threatened to break it up. Verse 17 goes on and says, uh, when the crew had thrown Jonah overboard, it says, now, what does that say? Now, the Lord, it says, provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Who's the instigator of this stuff? The Lord, right? The Lord sent the storm. The Lord provided a fish and put, and put Jonah in its belly. This is important. When we run from God, right, God allows us to face the consequences and the pain sometimes. Sometimes he'll even amplify it or send it to get our attention. He sent the storm to get Jonah's attention. He sent the storm to get the attention even of those guys that were on board the ship. He was pursuing them. He was pursuing each one of them. They mattered to the living God. And so he came after him. He sent the storm. He sent the fish, and it worked. By the end of the story, even these pagan sailors are putting their faith in God. They're turning back to God. They're quitting running and turning to him and praying to him and making vows, it says, to him. He brought a fish to let Jonah sit in his stomach for three days and three nights. Why? He didn't do it to to punish Jonah. This wasn't his punishment. He did it to bring Jonah back home to him. The story of Jonah, yeah, it's about running from God, but it's primarily about a God who cares, about a God who forgives, about a God who gives second chances, and we'll we'll see in a couple weeks, even third chances and beyond. The story of Jonah is about a God that is so full of grace that he would even give barbaric and immoral people of Nineveh, give them a second chance to come back to him. God wasn't trying to punish Jonah or the rest of the people in the story. He was trying to get their attention to bring them back home. Even though the storm was severe, even though fear was very real for these guys, it was motivated out of a heart of love and compassion and grace to bring them back home, to save them from the destruction that inevitably comes when we walk our own path and run our own way. Friends, some of us are here this morning and maybe we're experiencing some of that kind of pain, some of those kinds of consequences in our own lives. Maybe there's a storm that's raging and man, it's, it's, 
It's bleak looking. And you need to know this morning that God is not trying to punish you. He's trying to draw you back home to him. He knows that the life of a runner is marked by pain and destruction, sometimes even death. But Jesus says that those who come to him can experience and know life and know it to the full. There's this quote that I've been thinking about for the last couple weeks. If you jump ahead a couple slides, if you would. Kyle, Tim Keller quote, jump ahead. He says this, he says, the gospel is simply this. We, as human beings, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And isn't that true? Both are true. He's saying, you know what he's saying in our context? He's saying, we are runners, right? Whether we know it or not, we are sinful to our core and we take so many opportunities to push God and God's way and God's will off and run our own direction. But, he, but he's saying, you know what? But there's a God that's crazy about you. A God that died so that you can live. A God that is pursuing you so that you can know his forgiveness and his grace, his acceptance through what Christ has done for us. Some of us have been running from God in one area or another, and we've seen the damage that gets done, the cost for us. We've seen the cost even for our families, for our own hearts, for our own lives, and for those around us. We've made stupid decisions, and we've gone our own way. And today, I wonder if God isn't saying, man, it's time. It's time to hang up the running shoes. It's time to quit running away from God. It's time to stop have a come-to-your-senses sort of moment, turn back to him and just say, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you bring me back home? I need you. We have put God in the rearview mirror in too many ways. We've gone our own ways too many times. And this morning, a gracious, a loving, and a forgiving God is saying to each one of us, would you come home? Would you stop running? Would you turn towards me? Would you cry out in faith, saying, I need you? Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you lead me? Would you guide me? I want to live my life with you. And he says, you know what? When you do that, the doors of the kingdom get kicked open. Little welcome home banners over the top, right? And the living God welcomes you home. He forgives you. He cleanses you. And he leads you forward in his grace, in his love. In just a minute, we're going to have a chance to, uh, to celebrate and to remember God's grace to us uh, by celebrating communion together. And let me just tell you that com the communion table is a place not for those that think they have it all together because that person does not exist. We are all of us runners. The communion table is a place for sinners. It's a place for people that recognize that we're a wreck on our own that we are flawed and that we are sinful beyond what we can even imagine and yet we have an amazing and gracious God that has come and gave his life so that we can be forgiven. A God that came after us into the storm and rescued us and now puts us on the path headed towards heaven to walk with him, to be with him, to know him forever. A God that loves you that much a God that thinks that you're worth dying for. So communion is about. Communion is a, is a time where we come as broken and sinful and messed up people and we remember that on our own, we could never earn or get back to God, but that God has come to us in the person of Christ and therefore we have 
hope. Therefore, we can know forgiveness. Therefore, we get second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. We get more chances than we could ever deserve because he is a gracious and loving God. It's who he is. It's what he's done. Our practice here as a church is that if you get that, right, if you have uh, recognized your need for a Savior and you've opened up your heart and your life to Christ and invited him to come and save you and, and invited him to come and lead you from this point forward, anybody that puts their trust in Christ like that is welcome to, to celebrate communion with us. We think it's an opportunity for us to be reminded and to remember again and again and again about this gracious, loving God that we have and the fresh start that he gives anybody that puts their trust in him. And so if that's you, we invite you to, to, uh, to participate in communion together. We're going to ask the worship team and the ushers uh, to come up right now. They're going to play a song. We're going to pass out the bread and the juice. And as we do so, uh, I'm going to encourage you to hang on to it. Uh, the bread and the juice, we'll take it together in just a minute. And use this time just to kind of do some business with God. If there are ways that you have been running... I. I would just say, man, now's the time. Just in your heart, between you and God, just turn back to him this morning and just cry out to him for his grace, for his mercy, for his forgiveness. Turn back home. If you feel like you're doing pretty good, you and God, this morning invite him to search your heart and just recommit and open yourself up to him again. Use this time for God, and then when the song is done, um, I'll come up, I'll, I'll lead us, and I'll pray for us. And... Uh, and then we've got one more song of, of celebration. We'll be done. Let me just read First uh, Corinthians 11. It says this. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ so that we could be forgiven and free.